Yeah. Working. Just because we started recording doesn't mean this bit is like on the record because I'll cut out the gotcha. first few seconds. Although yeah, yeah. I did notice, I listened to the start of episode 10. Yeah. And you kept a lot of my back and forth with myself about whether to say good morning or good evening. It did. And in <laughs> fact, actually, I did say things back to you. You weren't just talking to yourself, but I didn't like how I sounded, so I cut myself out. For fuck's sake. <laughs> so you just sound that's what like I you. get for. That's what I get for you editing everything. All right. Oh, God. I'm going to kick it off. Do it. Good morning. My name is Shane. I am a furniture conservator restorer living in Sydney, Australia. Nice one. Hi, Shane. Hi. Good evening. My name is Harry. I'm a furniture maker in Bristol, England. God, I had to think about where I was then. That's not a good sign, is it? No. How are you, Shane? Yeah, right. I'm excited. Yeah. Exciting episode this week. So we've got someone who we've been looking forward to talking to for a while now. We have Peter Spalding with us, who is Iwao Wood and Art on Instagram, that's how I seem to refer to him as usually and in the last episode. Peter is a designer maker we kind of decided on, but I'd like to hand over to Peter. Say hello. Uh, hello guys, I'm here to say hello. Good morning, this is Peter. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say how awesome it is to be working with you guys and uh, that's so, I Ah, no worries. Fantastic. Yeah, you've been on, you've been on our list for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so this episode is going to be kind of a a continuation on the last one, which was design question mark. And at that point, I want to kind of hand over to Peter, if that's all right with you, to 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 pitch to us, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um. Absolutely. So, um, as I've as I've told you guys both before, every every time I listen to your podcast my head pops full of thoughts some of them in agreement <laughs> and some of them kind of like mm, i don't know so you know i i usually wind up messaging one or both of you and yeah. uh yeah commenting on that anyway so um that's yeah, great kind of picking up where you guys were leaving off on episode 10 i'm just gonna springboard off of that kind of and continue that discussion a little bit perfect so harry you started the episode with your pitch talking about some of the furniture making schools and kind of your displeasure with some of that. <laughs> and I just want to play kind of the devil's advocate on that for a moment. Yeah. So first of all, I should say I actually kind of agree with you because I don't much care for many of the designs myself. But yeah. I do feel like there is actually a great deal of skill and traditional woodwork going into those types of items, uh, furniture pieces. I, I, I think I have an idea of the types of pieces you're talking about. And yeah. although they may have a very kind of artsy looking feel, as you put it, or a, a branded feel, as Shane mentioned, I, I, I don't think that you can get that far making a piece of furniture without having at least some pretty strong idea of traditional crafts like you have to know what a mortise and tenon is and yeah yeah i guess that that i yeah i think you're right i think that that may be the case i think my my issue comes when that i guess in the exception when that's not the case and that's i think not not usually down to the student but in the the institution they're in in that it might be encouraged to to work in this way before that base of traditional woodworking construction tools whatever it may be has been established 
I think that that's where my issue comes when that's kind of skipped over. But I think you're right. I think a lot of the the designs that I may be talking about, I think, yeah, maybe that's true. And I've kind of jumped to that a little prematurely in that a lot of those wouldn't be possible without at least some sort of base understanding of, of the construction and the tools. I know here the the one major designer maker is school in Australia, Sturt. I mean, it's it's only a year long program. It's a very intensive program, but it's it's only a year. And in that year, you go from basically learning your hand tools. You you make your own hand saw, uh, dovetail saw, so you can learn how to cut dovetails, and you do all that. But you have like a month, two months to really drill down on that, and then they try and work through that and on to other things until eventually at the end of the year you're making and designing your own things. So you do cover it, but man, they go through a lot in that year. So my other thought on that is that, actually, I'm going to probably offend everyone at this point. There are certain levels of snobbery at all three tiers, so to speak. So you have kind of the lower end items and the mid end items and then the higher end stuff. And there's, there's almost a snobbery involved in all three. So to explain that you can pour an epoxy resin table and attach wooden legs to the bottom and call it woodwork and be really proud of it. And the person who's made said item has a certain sense of this is amazing and I'm going to charge a whole lot for this product. And then move up a tier. You have furniture makers such as yourself, Harry, that, you know, yeah. I've, I've done this all by hand and I've used all hand tools and it's simple and to the point and it does what it's supposed to do. And I've included, you know, uh, my sensibilities of beauty into this piece. And so at that point, to a degree, there's a certain amount of looking down on the person who made the river table and looking down on the people that go more artsy fartsy on that and then you step up to the third tier and you're like okay i've made this amazing thing that nobody's seen before and that person has his own snobbery looking down on the other three so it's kind of it's kind of this this canceling out where everybody is so kind of entrenched in their own ideas of beauty and what furniture should be. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I I think I I get what you mean. It, it it in a lot of cases almost becomes inevitable at whatever tier as you said. But yeah, I I, I and it, and that's definitely something that like personally I've been thinking about and I've no I've kind of caught myself doing it and in definitely recent times with being more involved in the Maker's Shed, a, a kind of community t- teaching space, and um, the Bower, where Shane worked in Sydney, I have definitely am working towards kind of drilling that out of myself and, and almost getting to a point where it's where I'm aiming for is you've made a thing, fuck yeah, you're making stuff, is kind of where I'd like to be and, and, and kind of put a lot of, which is really hard because I end up contradicting myself, it goes on and on <laughs> and on because, I mean, yeah, you can see where I'm going to go with it. But I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to have that level of snobbery. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so stage. either. I think that I think that's a very human thing to do, and it's and it's important to be proud of what you've made, mm. and and that's going to that's going to be kind of entrenched in in a maker of something, no matter 
what tier of object they're making. You know what I mean? Out of curiosity, mm. Harry, yeah, were you a little bit annoyed that you were in tier two? Um, <laughs> good you, question. Would you have put uh, them no, in that tier order? Not necessarily. When when Peter first said three tiers, I I had it quite differently. I I had. I thought so. Um. Well, yeah. I don't know. I had river tables me in tier two so i was in the same place and that also comes alongside i don't know i can't put it into tears <laughs> i i i yeah i don't know i don't know shane i can't answer that question yeah so that was kind of an arbitrary listing of tears um <laughs> but but the point that's the point cool. being there's there's kind of this there's this flashiness at the at the you know what i labeled tier one there's the flashiness of color of this you know sparkling epoxy resin and there's this flashiness yeah, yeah. at the top of this this one-of-a-kind unique highly uh elaborate piece and then in the middle you know there's more of a not necessarily utilitarian but the the point of the object is more to use it and have it for a long time and to appreciate it so that was kind of my listing of tears is there's there's almost a bit yeah, of flashiness yeah. there's a bit of flashiness on either end of the spectrum with with the middle being more it's about the object not about wowing yeah that makes sense yeah where, where do you put yourself in those tears peter somewhere between the somewhere between the the second and third probably yeah yeah that makes sense yeah because I mean, a lot of the <laughs> items that I do make, some of them have no functionality, like whether uh, they introduced me or you guys introduced me as a designer maker because I make such a wide variety of things. It could be furniture or it could be a wooden spoon or it could be a sculpture or you know, I've built houses. So, I mean, there's there's really not anything other than possibly boats and a dresser made of wood. <laughs> made of wood that I haven't made before. So some of my items are they're they're not really functional. They're just purely aesthetic or they're to they're to look at and handle but not otherwise use. And sometimes those objects are very crude intentionally. Drawing on a more primitive type of art and other times it's it's more extravagant in my opinion where I'm I'm incorporating uh handmade Japanese papers and different things of that nature. So somewhere between yeah. 2 and 3. Do you see yourself as an artist? Yes, I do. Although Yeah. Although I would kind of if I were really to define myself, I would say that I am a storyteller who uses wood. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. that's yeah. that's kind of what I'm aiming for when I make something. I want to I don't want a piece simply to be there and to exist, but I want to evoke thoughts and feelings in the viewer. I want to if I'm successful, remind them of something from the past or make them dream of something from the future. And I use wood kind of as my medium. So I began life as an artist drawing and painting and writing. And it wasn't until um, I was kind of forced into woodwork out of necessity that I later on began to view wood as this can be more than just for slapping a house together or not slapping, but uh, putting a house up because that's how I started woodworking. And yeah. it was later that I was like, okay, you can make really beautiful things out of this that are functional, um, but there, there can be a lot more to it than that. So I kind of began woodwork from the point of view of an artist doing something I didn't enjoy doing. 
but as it turned out, I was pretty good at working with wood. And so that just became the next mm-hmm. the next stepping stone for telling a story. That's mm-hmm. great. And I, I think that actually really sets you up because you started off building and you've done every different aspect. You know, you've made stuff around your house. You understand yeah. or can see all the different paths and avenues that, that wood can have and the, the value of being able to do it. So I can understand why you would kind of look at it and go, why are you over there being so snobby about this? And why are you over there being so snobby about this? It's it's a great material and you can go in so many different directions with it, which I think right, is but at the same, a great point. But at the same time, I also recognize there's a bit of that snobbery in myself, you know, yeah. because you wouldn't catch me dad pouring uh, an epoxy resin table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I you know what I mean? So why do so we hate of... them so much out of curiosity? Because we collectively hate them so much. But why? Uh, I know why I hate them. And good. Well <laughs> Um There's just there there's lacking something that that's really important to me in woodwork, which is first of all the, the organic nature of it. Um mm. I began working not so concerned about using only organic things um, as I do now. You know, I began with power tools and with varnish from the big box store. And, you know, I began low as many, 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 many people do. Anyone interested in woodworking often begins with what's most available and they are most familiar with. But Hmm. the more I began working with wood, the more I began to appreciate the natural feel of it, the natural characteristics it has. And that led me more and more and more into excluding anything that wasn't, I guess Mm -hmm. I should say. So there's, there's that aspect of it. But the other, I think, kind of goes into philosophy where I just feel like I don't feel like there's a lot of soul being placed into an epoxy resin table. I don't I don't feel like there's that connection between the maker and the object that they're making in in that sort of setting because you're just pouring something and it hardens and it is what it is at that point you know and you polish it but there you don't have that hands-on shaping of everything to the same degree so i feel like it's missing something in that regard what what about do you think do you think it's do you think it's possible to do it thoughtfully yes and no i i don't know how to describe that what do you what do you guys think on them I've seen some really good stuff where people, you know, really take the time to to consider the wood that's gone in and then maybe add some color or decoration into the epoxy stuff. I've seen some people really care for it and it doesn't feel as just pumped out as, you know, some of them feel where it's like, I'm just going to take these and I'm going to pour it and look how awesome that is. And I also do know a lot of people who who look at them and and go, wow, that's amazing. Look at the beauty of wood. And I'm like, uh... (laughs) It's it's plastic. <laughs> I like wood because it's not plastic, and you've just introduced a whole bunch of plastic to it. <laughs> right, right. What about you, Harry? Is it the same reason, or? I think it's yeah. I think it is is a bit of a combination of the two. I I agree with you, Shay. I I have it. It varies from who's doing it, but I can also see why it's become such a trend because to the to the layman, if you will, it's satisfying and yeah it's 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 flashy like, um, it's colorful yes yeah, it's, it's flashy and it and it's fun to watch and it's like when people glaze cakes with the mirror glaze it's, it's very <laughs> satisfying but maybe a french patisserie chef is going to look at that in the same way <laughs> i don't know but yeah it, it's that and also yeah it's just a huge lump of plastic next to this bit of timber that's just been growing so hard and then we've cut it down 
and then we we kind of make it into something nice, guys, and then stick it. But uh, I don't know. A big lump <laughs> of plastic is the main thing. Um, I that just that just oh, I don't like it. Like imagine that that slab laid in in landfill for a few hundred years, then you're just going to have the plastic. I think that's, uh, I think there's... Something about that. I think in terms of the snobbery thing, it's really important, I think, to distinguish when we're we're getting, like, gatekeeper-esque snobbery versus yeah. standing by our convictions of what we think is good. You know, it's, it's one thing to be like, oh, river tables, that's just what, you know, people who don't know what they're doing do. And, you know, I'm a real woodworker and I, I because of that, I hate river tables. You know, that's that's bullshit. Indeed. Uh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For me, the plastic part is, is a really big part of that. Like I said, natural materials, even more so where I live now, because I live in a place that people just tend to litter a lot. And I think that although I, I miss the, the trees and greenery and all of that of Tennessee, the, the desert out here in California can be beautiful, but it's just so full of plastic and trash and it just blows around the desert forever so that's kind of a big part of of my standoffishness with the resin tables because as you said it's it's a it's a big glob of plastic and i don't feel i don't feel ethically good about adding more plastic yeah yeah totally. and i think that's i think it's important think it... to note that is different from from snobbery agreed you can you can take that conviction and be a snob with that conviction definitely yes but it's it's something very very different to to be I don't know like yeah you know what I mean I guess does that make sense yeah well I think yeah. you made a really I good think... point Shane is is that you know you've seen people do some really kind of quality and craftsman-esque type stuff with with epoxy so I think it's important to note that depending on the skill and and involvement and thought of the person making it you know you can make something beautiful with anything whether it be a block of solid ice carved with a chainsaw or a bit of plastic yeah yeah you know so you you can in the right hands craft beauty out of anything but it again it goes it just goes back to the adding plastic to the world for me yeah I, I do the original kind of who is credited as starting the whole river table thing it was done with glass was interesting it? i did not know that um yeah guy called someone Cla- classen Cla- classen i think spelled with a k i can't remember his first name but it was not poured glass but because that would just scorch the timber horribly but like like the same thing i think two live edges but then a, a rebate on each one and a and a, a kind of fluid looking bit of glass laid on the top i think that was how it was originally done just a fun fact cool. interesting yeah. yeah i've seen some done that way and it, it yeah I, I i like it i think the other thing for me is like so we have a giant slab of elm that i was given by glenn rundle after taking my chair course beautiful piece nice. and it's in the workshop up at ics and oliver and i are talking about how we're going to make you know two stool seats out of it and then um you know we're going to make the seat for another chair i want to make and we've also got this old really old english elm windsor like or or welsh kind of english comb back chair uh in the shop that's that's mm. just hanging around and it needs new legs so we can use some of that english elm to make the the new oh, legs for nice. it and whatnot and and i just see this piece of timber and there's so much potential in it and so much you can do and and one of the beautiful things about craft and craft skills is growing the the potential of what you can do with with these materials and then some other people came in and they're looking at it like wow you know what have you seen those river tables that you can do with that and I, I just bit my tongue because i look at that and i see so much more potential in it now because of 
of the skills that I've learned and the furniture that I've looked at and the way I've mm. looked into how things are made. And so sometimes when I look at slab furniture or river <laughs> tables, I'm just like, you could have done so much with that. Do you respond to those people with, uh, yeah, I could do? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> I, I agree with that. But I also feel like I should play devil's advocate just a moment for river tables as well. Yeah. Yeah, do it. So it also goes back again to something discussed in episode 10 about the value of newness. I think that to some regard, river tables and even other things that are more arts, art, artistic and artistic based that, you know, I've never, you've never seen this before. Those types of newness on either end of the spectrum, I think have a great role in attracting people to craft to begin with. Mm. Because there are, there are a lot of people who walk around seeing woodwork all around them, but they never consider it because it's kind of just more of the same. Yeah. So, so to give an example, as an adult, if I see a really old, well-built, weathered table that's been sitting a hundred years in a barn, I can see a great deal of beauty in that very simple, weathered, lonely table. I, I can see the value in it, and I may even make a piece trying to recreate that same feeling. But as a child, had I seen said table walking through a barn, I'd have been as likely to kick it or think, um, what a lovely bit of firewood. You know, because I, I didn't yeah. have that same appreciation for the, the oldness and the simplicity of it that I do now. But I, I think that sometimes those new flashy things can attract the attention of people who, you know, you have wood cabinets in your house. You don't really pay attention to the grain in the cabinet unless you're a furniture maker. Yeah. Yeah. So, I wonder how many river tables have got people into woodworking. Exactly. Probably more, more, than, more than I have. Yeah. Right. So, so for, for that <laughs> aspect of it, although I really hate the idea of adding plastic to the world and I don't as much see the value of highly elaborate things that are just built to wow and impress, at the same time, those, those attract attention that sometimes that middle tier doesn't attract as much for the average person. And it can make them think, oh, wow, that's beautiful you can do that with wood or I, yeah. you can make this I, yourself I appreciate that i have a couple things i want to say in response to that if i might absolutely one is it's not so much on the the newness design aspect but on that concept of bringing new people in because i think that that's fantastic and you're absolutely right i mean when i first started the things that i was working in a junk shop trying to do up old furniture and stuff and i was you know painting and sanding and and you know taking this piece and adding it to that and taking the legs of this one and putting the top of that one on top and like really getting into this experimental creative aspect of it at first and that really was exciting um exactly and i didn't and in fact like actually peter and i you and i talked about this a little bit the fact that i i didn't know quote unquote better was actually great because i didn't feel like i was incapable at that point i felt like so proud of this thing that probably has fallen apart by now and that was enough <laughs> to keep me engaged in it and when we do the the box course the one that i i wrote for the bower that project is awful it's a it's four boards and a plywood on both sides and you know you, you circular saw it it's it's not a fine piece of work um, it's, fine. it's fine it's fine woodworking and <laughs> 
and but it, it is something that is is tangible that people get excited it's a little bit more challenging than what people think that they can do and that's enough to bring them in and you're definitely right, right about those new designs I, I agree totally seeing something new seeing what somebody did that like makes you look at a material slightly differently on the reverse what makes me nervous about that is when that gets hyped too much and then what you end up with mm. is is the idea that good is only when you're doing something new or what's to be valued or shared online is only yeah. when somebody's doing absolutely. something different absolutely and, and yeah. I, I'm with you too. Uh, Harry, you had something to say? Yeah, I, I was just going to say that it, it, it kind of come, comes back to you, you've got this river table that is getting millions of views, say, on YouTube, whatever it might be. And a lot of those are then going to think, right, cool, wood, wood and doing stuff with wood is really cool. But how many of those are just going to go on to make river tables? And kind of, is it worth it? Is the value of the amount of people that's bringing into woodworking actually worth it because are the pieces they're going to make are they going to have a positive impact chances are slim right feels yeah i i i very much agree with that and it's it's hard to gauge that i think i mean because to kind of rephrase what you've just said how many of those people will progress to the middle way so to speak how many will you know halt their careers in just doing that one thing because that's what they consider to be amazing woodwork due to the hype around it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so i i'm with you very much and that's i don't know that's a difficult thing to to evaluate because i think so few so few people whether they be craftsmen or not really have that that deep thinking about them i think that a lot of people do deep thinking and do question and reevaluate what they're doing but i i think it's definitely fewer than the masses so to speak mm. i think though motivation is really important behind so many things because the thing that yeah. that often I find and I think we both find really important is is the reasoning and the thought behind something and with say you know let's not pick on river tables because they're not really the only thing out there but let's say somebody gets into right. mass producing <laughs> you know chipboard furniture or something or something right. else that we, yeah. we don't like when when that person is just gone uh, here's a thing I can do to make a buck I'm gonna you know I oh, I'm almost like it feels like they're getting away with it. Like, oh man, all I have to do is, you know, just uh, just take this and put some epoxy in it and people love it and I can sell it for loads of money. And you know, the, the thought behind yes. it has nothing to do with like caring for this material or caring for this trade or anything other than making a making money that that really fundamentally as, as you may know <laughs> bothers me and i'm <laughs> i think that that the motivation or the interest behind it is more important in many ways than than the item itself um right so i, I don't mind river tables inherently or certain things it really is why did you why is this why did you make it did you need it did you did you get inspiration from it um, and and then if that person can grow into you know thinking about how long it's going to last and you know what purpose it's going to serve in the future and how have I made good care of these skills and these materials and you know that's all icing that's that's the best um, exactly and I have to say that what you just talked uh, 
talked on a, a number of points, but I have to say, first of all, that's one of the number one reasons I love your guys' podcast. That's one of the things I love <laughs> about it is the fact that you're not telling people how to do things and the way that you've necessarily done things, but it's the thoughtfulness behind it. And I can't tell you how much, to me, that is a valuable and indispensable aspect of good work. So I love, I love that about this podcast. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Peter. I'm definitely keeping that bit in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll keep that one. <laughs> oh, that's great. In that regard as well, actually, that touches on something I think you wanted to talk about. So I'm going to throw that your way because you say you don't, you don't like to watch a lot of things or or get attached to stuff where people put in like the details of how they make something. And you were talking to me before about how important that is to your design process as well. Do you want to yes. talk about that a little bit more? Sure. For one, one of the reasons that I love doing what I do and the variety of things that I make is the, the going back to newness, the newness of what I'm doing, the discovery value, the exploration value of trying to figure out how am I going to connect this joint in a way that will do what I need it to do figuring out a way to improvise and make an object with a tool that is perhaps not best suited to the task because I don't have the proper one. So there's a lot of exploration value in it for me and I really enjoy that. It's it's very for me it's very human to to question and wonder and not know and try to find a way to figure that out. So that's definitely a part of it for me. The other part really about why I don't, why actually why I try to avoid sometimes closely studying particular designs in particular, not so much how to do something, but the design itself. To, to really get into that, I have to tell a little bit of a story first. It starts with poetry, right? Perfect for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. In 2015, I was going through a divorce and I already mentioned before that I used to write a lot. So one of the ways that I kind of worked through everything I was feeling in regards to that was writing. And I wrote a great deal of poetry between 2015 and 2016. It's all I did. I was busting out seven or eight different pieces a day in regards to poems. Cool. And, and I was posting those on the now defunct G+. Which, oh, really? yes, which there was a, it's kind of like a special interests version of Facebook where it was be, because there were various rooms of, you know, there was a place dedicated to car lovers and this and that. So I was in a few different poetry groups on G plus and I would post my work there because I didn't want to write in a vacuum, so to speak, where it was only me and people would read my stuff. And a lot of them would comment, wow, you your work really reminds me of Charles Bukowski. Okay, I had never heard of Charles Bukowski. I had never read any of his books or his poems or anything. But eventually that got suggested to me so many times that I finally picked up one of his books and I started reading it. And there was definitely a certain similarity there between his tone and style, even flow and cadence and all of that in what he wrote and mine. So there, there were many similarities, even in in subject matter to a degree. Mm. However, I was not Bukowski and Bukowski wasn't me. But what happened is the more I read his work, the more I became enamored in the way he wrote. And 
even though we began with, yes, there's a similarity between his work and mine, there came a point where I had entrenched myself so much in reading everything that he had written that to a degree I'd lost my voice and everything mm. I wrote from there out was almost a mimicry, a mimicry of Bukowski rather than writing from my own personal perspective or my own personal viewpoints. So with that story said, I kind of approached design in the same way. I think that it would be an awful idea for me to closely study the work of anybody that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Or any particular style even. I like to be acquainted with many different designs, but I, I don't want to look at the details too closely. Like, for example, I really admire Matt Kenny's works from M.E.K. Woodworks on Instagram. I really yeah. admire his work. It's beautiful. But it is so appealing to me that if I were to spend much time scrolling through all of his pages and pictures, that would inevitably infect my work to a point where instead of me pursuing my imagination and producing pieces I was proud of, I would at that point be chasing his ideal and i the, the yeah. point the point about the poetry is i could never write bukowski as well as bukowski nobody yeah. can can ever replicate the work of another person to that same level of perfection so as long as you're chasing someone else's ideal of of pre-existing work you're not going anywhere you may be learning a few things or techniques as you try out, as you try to explore how to, to do one thing or another that someone else has done, but you're still putting their work kind of on a pedestal that, that somehow finds a shadow over your own. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think it's, it's so easy to do as well, even if it's not necessarily intentional, but more of a subconscious thing. Um, I don't suppose you were intentionally trying to mimic someone else's poetry but your work just kind of morphs that way because that's what you've kind of engulfed yourself in and uh, and admire yes yeah yeah i think i think that's that's a really good point to mention i think it's difficult kind of from a beginner's point of view not to do that and i think it, it takes quite a lot of Maybe courage isn't the right word, but it takes something about you to be able to kind of take those initial strides into working in such a way without being heavily influenced by someone. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that, I don't know, I, I do think, again, there is some value to to mimicking someone else's work when when you're just learning. There's yeah. definitely value to that yeah. because you're you're learning something, but there comes a point where you actually I, I feel that you have to be guarded about about just doing what someone else has done because I mean the world is definitely full of so many things that it really is hard to do anything new under the sun. And I don't think that's necessarily important, but I also think it's not important to continue making the same thing. That piece already exists somewhere. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not really adding anything to the world by by making an exact replica that's not quite as good as the original, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not sure I entirely agree. I, that's I good. definitely agree with a <laughs> lot of it. And I think I think one of the biggest dangers of, uh, or warnings from the story you tell is is getting too bogged down in one specific style is. Yeah, is is a bit risky. You know, if, if all you read is Bukowski, then then you're inherently going to 
write like Bukowski and you're probably going to start finding yourself in public acting like Bukowski and then that's a whole other issue. <laughs> oh, it um, is because you don't, you don't want to act like Bukowski did. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but, but if you, you know, if you read Bukowski and then you read some old French poets and then you read some Mexican poets and then you read, you know, all sorts of different things and you can kind of get a feel for the different avenues and options that you can go down and then Mm -hmm. eventually start to build your tool belt, essentially of techniques or styles or cadences or, you know, something that's a little bit outside, you're trying to figure out how to do something and you go, oh yeah, I remember when, you know, so-and-so used this kind of technique to get the right punch. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And I can pull that in and I can make it my own. I think there's so much value in in looking at and trying a bunch of different things. And I think there'd be value in a furniture maker potentially, well, maybe this is because this is what I'm trying to do. Just go out and, you know, learn how did these, you know, Italian carvers carve? How did these English market or French marketry people do this? And how did, you know, Windsor chair makers do that? And I think that then you can draw from all those skills into it. I also think it, coming directly from having done this course earlier this year with, with Glenn Rundle, um, making a Windsor chair, that, that whole tradition of making Windsor chairs is great. And I don't think that there's any, anything wrong with people continuing to make the same styles of Windsor chairs over and over again. They're wonderful chairs. The process of making them is beautiful. Carrying on that tradition of making chairs in that way is wonderful. One of the things that really struck me was Glenn went and learned how to make chairs from Curtis Buchanan in the States. And while he was there, he was taking notes and taking notes. And Curtis Buchanan basically gave him all of the plans for the chairs and said, go make make these. You can have my plans. Just copy them. Just get good at making them. And then Glenn went and has made the same style of chair and then added his own slowly into it. And I think that that's amazing. And I wouldn't, I, I absolutely would not say that that is a waste of time for Glenn to be making those beautiful chairs and the way that he makes them just because they're the same as somebody else has already made at some point. No, and I do agree with that. But at the same time, I, I also think that if you are exemplifying one particular person's work, as long as you continue to make it exactly as they did, it won't ever be as good as exactly what they did. You do have to, at some point, introduce some of your own personality or some of your own life experience into what you're making instead of continually chasing the shadow of something else or someone else. Yeah, I I, I think that's a really good point. But I I do also think it depends on why you're making. Like if you're in your position or Harry's position and you're a designer maker and and you want to put out your pieces or you want to express yourself as a maker, you want to explore the beauty of, of creating. Absolutely. If you just want a Sam Maloof chair to sit in the corner of your room and get the experience of making it, then just make a Sam Maloof chair or buy one. Well, indeed, indeed. And and that wasn't a commentary on craft as a whole, but as on, on the idea of design in particular. Because mm. if you are designing, then you don't want to design what someone else has done. But if you're making because you enjoy making, then yes, absolutely. Nothing wrong with copying somebody else's designs because you're getting out of it what you wanted to get out of it. You're, you're accomplishing your goal of, I want a chair like that one. Yeah. But, but in regards to when somebody sits down to actually design their own piece, 
that's that's when it becomes a different story where you have to be you have to be very guarded when you feel yourself particularly drawn to to one person's designs in particular yeah i i i definitely agree yeah. with that i mean you yeah. don't you don't want to you don't want to start designing pieces say if i was copying mike pekovich or matt kenny as i mentioned earlier or anyone else say somebody was trying to copy my work um you don't want anyone really to be copying that and then put it out as their own yeah you, you don't yeah. you don't know no what you know somebody recently made um one of harry's boxes on instagram and it looked great but he didn't say oh this is my box in my design you know he yeah, yeah right yeah. so you get what i'm saying with that yeah definitely the other thing in regards to why i kind of stay away from studying too closely you know it's it's a personal matter for me because i am somewhat obsessive in my personality like if if there's something that really speaks to me i i in particular have to be more careful about that so it's not necessarily a blanket statement um, where it applies to everyone because everyone has different personality types but yeah. what i yeah. would recommend yeah but what i would recommend is if you are trying to start designing your own pieces if you are getting out there and you're wanting to create something that makes you happy that has your touch to it and expresses what you're trying to express instead of you know pouring over the work of another person yes you need to know how certain parts function you need to know what a good height for a chair is what a good height for a table is you have to know those things but it's more important to consider the philosophy behind the work you admire rather than the work itself um because i think that anything that has greatness to it that that people look back on and think oh that was great work it was great because it had specific philosophy behind it ming furniture ming era furniture in china had a philosophy to it shaker furniture had their own um, kind of religious philosophy to it and mm -hmm. it was that philosophy of how they work and why they work and why they're designing this way in my opinion that makes shaker furniture stand out it's not just oh get rid of all the elaborate details and now it's beautiful no they had a they had a deep religious philosophical understanding of what life should be and they put that into their pieces yeah, I think that's really valuable. It gets, really gets you drawn into it. And that's part of what, yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. Yeah, so you, you can't recreate yeah. anything without having that philosophy. I mean, it, it, all great work, whether it be uh, Norse or, or uh, Scandinavian carvings on old churches, they had a philosophy behind their carving. Native American masks and, you know, all the different wonderful things in the world, every single one of them was f founded in a philosophy. So if you are designing and you're getting out there, pay special attention to what is your philosophy in design? What do you admire about design? Why do you admire it? Why do you want to make the pieces that you're making? Why do they speak to you? And why do you want them to speak to other people? I think that's one of the most important questions that any designer really can ask themselves. And just trying to answer the question, which is probably one of the hardest to answer, what is beauty? Hmm. So if you have that in your mind while you're making, what is beauty? And if you can to some degree answer that, I think that you can make beautiful designs, regardless sometimes of your skill level. You, yeah. you can find a person who has a really well-established philosophy making stuff with really simple tools making beautiful things. I think that that, that philosophy is, is so important. 
Yeah, yeah, I th- I I do agree with you. I think it, I think we spoke about it at some point early early on in the podcast, Jane. I think I can't remember when it was, but I spoke about the feeling of a need to be able to justify each of my choices, mm-hmm. and that's what I keep kind of thinking back to hearing you talk Peter it's kind of each choice whether it be a design choice a material choice or what tool I'm going to use for a specific process personally I just want there to be more than I just used it because it was the most convenient or this is the design because it was easiest or quickest or it makes me the most money I think I just want there to be more to those decisions I want there to be some sort of justification if if I were to be and maybe that stems in me in kind of a self-consciousness in if I were to be questioned on that particular element do I have a good answer for it right well I mean do you you're also wanting to be proud of that at the end I'm assuming so exactly yeah so, so you're making choices also that you feel um, not only structurally proud of but also aesthetically proud of yeah 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 definitely so so it Absolutely. does go back to the question of, of beauty I mean it, it is a really hard question to answer because if if you if you consider a cloudy rainy day that's overcast and gray um, there's a certain beauty to that but how is it then that a, a bright and sunny day is also beautiful so it's a very difficult thing to pin down, but there there is a sometimes a subtle and unspoken beauty to things that, yeah, everybody kind of has their own in the eye of the beholder. Um, that's something that's said quite often. But there's also kind of a, a universal sort of beauty that I try to look for. Um, because no matter where you're from on the planet, you can look at a sunny day and think, oh, what a beautiful day. Uh, I think my eyes hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it depends on your state of mind, but there is, I think, I can be incredibly grumpy one day and absolutely hate the sun. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but so there's definitely a state of mind to it, but there's also, I, I think, a very universal idea of what beauty can be that I think can speak to anyone. And that's really hard to pin down, but I think there's something more to it than eye of the beholder. And that's what I try to, to answer. And the question that I kind of ask myself sometimes when I'm making. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that whether it, it be that same question or not, I think just questioning yourself throughout the process is, is a really crucial thing kind of, yeah not just not necessarily just getting through it and kind of hammering through the process to get to the end yeah just having a little i mean and it comes back to the thing we talked about under time shane kind of that thoughtfulness in every decision i think that's just an important thing at every step yeah i really do i i think there's something else peter said that we kind of we skimmed over because then you had a, a second point to make on top of that which i also think needs to be kind of added in and needs to be considered and i think i've been formulating what my pitch is going to be next and unfortunately peter i'm going to steal a little bit from you for that but you were do talking it. about <laughs> do it. You, the exploration aspect of working of not having yeah. a technique set that you know you you know the concept behind a mortise and tenon joint, you know the concept behind how wood as a material works, particularly the wood you have, and you understand sharp edges and you know how different power tools work. And you're going to explore to a certain degree how to use what's available to you to get that construction. And I'm mm-hmm. I I've definitely been drawn to craft more than 
design because of that aspect that there's that that d- discovery um, and exploration and almost like MacGyveriness of of figuring out how to get what I want by having a deeper understanding of the materials and the philosophies and the the techniques and the tools and being able Absolutely. to explore along the line. And I, I, I don't think we have too much time to talk about today, but that is something I want to talk a lot about more. But I'd be interested if you have any more now to say on that subject. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I'm, first of all, I'm interested in hearing more about that when you guys do discuss that further. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's you definitely have to know certain things to get to a certain point. But there, there's still, even if you can't get to that point yet, there's still certainly uh, a joy in being able to get there. Because uh, you, you start somewhere, everywhere, you know, no matter who you are, you're starting somewhere. And there's always going to be something more to learn. And I think that's one of the, the other big draws towards craft is learning something that you don't know yet. So that's definitely part of it. And once you once you reach a certain level and you you feel confident in a particular task or you you're gaining confidence in that task, once you get there you can do more. But you know, where where do you what do you do when you know everything? For me, that would be I think that would take a lot of joy out of it for me. If if I understood everything if i knew everything whether it be craft or not you know if whatever the topic would be if, if i knew absolutely everything about it i don't think i'd be interested anymore well i i know exactly what, something else i know exactly what i would do <laughs> yeah <laughs> what would you do Shane? my my dream in all of this in all of my my idea of learning and studying craft is that i will understand these materials and tools so much that then i can just go off into the woods and live on my own <laughs> and ignore everyone and just make things out of what's around me and put these these skills and knowledge to the test. Like, that's what I, I have in this fantasy world in my head. <laughs> and I'm building all these skills and knowledge so that I can just go be independent and make stuff from what's out there. So if there's a big gap between episodes of the podcast... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... Oh. To- to kind of put it in something that I feel that I kind of have mastered, which would be kind of Western style carpentry, building houses. I had so much fun when I was learning how to do that. Every day was just an adventure of, of new learning. And you know, partially I was, I was chasing that learning because it equaled a better paycheck. Um, the more you knew, you know, the, the more money you made in, in building houses. But there came a point where you know, you can only build a wall so many times before mm. it just becomes kind of routine. It's just mindless work, which can be cathartic sometimes, but this same excitement no longer exists. I mean, I, I can build you, honestly, I could probably build you a house by myself in about seven weeks, depending on the size. Let's say 1,200 square feet. I, I could build that on my own and not really have to think about it because it's so it's it's so second nature to me and i appreciate that i'm glad that i have that knowledge but i'm definitely not going to spend the rest of my my life um walking around building houses just because i can yeah i think that's a good point so i don't know i mean there's there's a balancing act and it does go back to your personality type if if knowing how to do absolutely everything and living in the woods and just doing that makes you happy then go for it (laughs) i don't know if it makes me happy i haven't tried it yet but um, fantasizing about it surely makes me happy. <laughs> right? Well, that's 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 the value of the newness, because you don't know yet. 
I uh, think you'd find something else in the forest. I think I'd get. I think I'd go back to town after a week. To be honest, so that's fine. <laughs> like, come on, look, I can burn stuff. I'm going to invent steam engines. Like, oh man, I just have to build a spinning wheel, and then I can spin this. Oh man, oh, oh, I don't want to do that. Well, what would happen? One day you'd get sick, and eventually, you know, you'd have to find a way to deal with that, and you would become an herbalist and forget all about craft. Yeah, that's true. Or just die. Yeah. You just pick blue- <laughs> you'd pick blueberries and mint all day. That also sounds alright. Huh? That also sounds pretty good. Oh. Yeah. Um, I think we, I think we can pretty much wrap it up there. That was great. Yeah, that was a great, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I had a blast. I'm so glad I got to be here with you guys. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Do you want to do a real quick? What have you been up to? Yeah. Um, Peter, what have you been doing last last week or so? Oh, um, a few different things. The last three days, actually, I've been chasing down a problem that didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so is that with the steaming box? Yes, yes. So I built this steam box. Um, I guess six months ago, maybe when I when I made my first chair, and I I bent the the back of the crest uh, the the crest rail. I'd actually done some bending before of smaller items, but I had boiled those. Um, they were small enough mm. to fit into a pan, and boiling works great, by the way. So if anybody is looking into making chairs, if you have a a three foot long vat that you can boil, keep that because it'll be <laughs> amazing. But no, so I built the steam box and. I've got another chair in mind that I'd kind of like to explore. So I wanted to make sure that my steam box was, you know, functioning at max capacity before I get toward tackling that because I only have kiln dried stock available to me. Steam bending kiln dried stock is something of a nightmare and I've only got so much material on hand. So I don't want to go around breaking five pieces just so I can make one. So I'm trying to get that, you know, optimum uh, heat inside the steam box. And I've just spent the last three days fussing around with it, trying to get the heat higher. And as I discovered this morning, the heat was actually fine. It was my thermometer that had gone bad. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Christ. Yeah, so that's been fun. Um, I've also been kind of fiddling with this cabinet that I've been making. I've not quite made up my mind on a couple of the design choices for it, and it's a very small cabinet, so I'm also running into a few unexpected areas where I'm not certain the joinery that I was intending to do will be strong enough to the task because the material is so thin in places. Yeah, yeah. So I'm facing some challenges with that. I'm kind of taking my time, um, trying not to rush over it and just kind of consider everything even if I'm only cutting one or two joints a day or you know just a bit at a time so that I don't ruin what I've made already and last thing I've just been wrapping up an experiment that I've been doing with uh, copper dying copper yeah I've been loving with copper yeah so I've got this box you know I've I've made the um the riven boxes and I don't know what it I, I think I had ebonized a couple with steel wool and vinegar. What's and the timber? Redwood. Redwood. Coastal redwood. Uh, like the it's in the same family as the the sequoias. Mm-hmm. So, but but I I had ebonized one 
And I've ebonized a lot of other things too, but for some reason I just had this idea pop into my head. What if, what if I could use copper to create a chemical reaction? Um, what would that look like? So I started trying to dissolve copper and painting that on instead of dissolved iron and got some very interesting results on one of my riven boxes. One thing led to another and it kind of became an exploration of uh, marrying the redwood and the copper together in various ways. So I've involved copper as a material rather than as a dye in a couple other aspects of that box. Mm -hmm. I've been putting I put the last coat of tongue oil on it. It is curing and I'm really looking forward to kind of revealing on Instagram the way those pieces yeah. those pieces go together. So I've just been wrapping that up. But other than that, I've not been doing anything. Uh, I'm ex so excited <laughs> to see the results of that. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, really cool. I've been following about... that with great attention if you haven't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it's a combination of copper dye, which I'm not even really sure I should call it dye because it's actually two different things happening. And I don't want to discuss kind of the chemistry behind that because it can be kind of dangerous. Um, so I don't want anybody rushing out there and doing something that could hurt them. But it's a Same. it's a combination of of dye and pigment created from the copper. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a couple different things happening with the color. That's really cool. In contrast to Peter's concern about your safety, I got to play with nitric acid this week. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Which is absolutely not recommended, and please don't touch it, but I'm going to tell you about it. I loved it. I've had a nightmare of the last uh, week or so trying to deal with color. Color is absolutely my nemesis in wood. Color is a nightmare. In, in so much of what we do, you know, there's a stain in a piece of wood, or there's some missing timber, and the timber is sun-bleached over time, or something, and, and you have to either introduce a new veneer or a piece of timber into it and then try and get it to color in so that your eye doesn't notice it. And that's very tricky because our eyes are very good at noticing color in many cases and differentiations or something that stands out always pulls your eye. So trying to get these new pieces of timber in and then color them or particularly in one case there was a water stain that had gone dark and trying to bleach that out so that then I could introduce color to bring it back to the timber around it. Um, because in this particular case, the, that's, the client would really like this water stain not to be there, and I can understand why. And I, I'm, I struggle with color so much, but there's so many different ways to do it. You can um, add pigments, you can add dyes, you can add paints. There's a whole variety of those. And then there's, of course, the chemical stains and using the way that timbers interact with certain chemicals, whether they're acids or, or alkalines or, or various, or iron in the case of what you were talking about before. And these are always fascinating. These are often worrying because those interactions are sometimes permanent, as opposed to, say, if I use shellac in a pigment, I can wash that shellac back off again. Right. But it's exciting because you can get different results. So whereby like a pigment or a dye is going to sit on the surface, a chemical stain is going to stain the wood in something that's a little bit more natural, more similar to say sun bleaching, which happens in a, it's actually decaying the wood is what sun bleaching does. So some of the chemicals are actually going to decay the wood in a similar way. So it's, it's scary because it's doing damage and it's also irreversible, but it is sometimes going to give you the closest result to to what's around it because our eye will pick up on loads of things so we were trying to try different bleaches on this piece of wood earlier and um i was remembering that at westine arian had bleached some rosewood with nitric acid 
Yeah. And then yeah. Shane Rivers had actually mentioned that when, when she'd studied and when she was in her early career, if they needed to bleach a piece of rosewood or something, they would they would go straight to nitric acid. And that thought was in my head, like, oh, yeah, they go straight to nitric acid. And so I asked Oliver about it, and Oliver was like, oh, yeah, I remember doing nitric acid way back in school. Um, and it's really terrible, and don't touch it. It'll burn your hands and leave permanent stains and stuff on your skin, and it can kill you, so... You know, just general <laughs> warning. Um, but we did it anyway. But there's, it, it depends on how you use the nitric acid. And in the use that we did on this piece of wood, we were trying to bleach. It's not the bleaching technique. It's a way to color it. So we accidentally dyed the piece of wood darker than we had originally <laughs> intended. So we've just been tr trying to deal with that. Threat of death aside, I think you have the hardest job of all of us, Shane, because I mean, I I'm just basically playing with wood. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got to go in and surgically deal with already existing items. It's, it's a lot different from me making something in my garage that I consider a failure and just being like, eh, whatever, move on. You you're dealing with, with heirlooms sometimes <laughs> it's um Mis yeah it's, it can be nerve-wracking i try very hard to just think about the technique that i'm trying to do and achieving the best result and try and put everything else outside of my mind there are certain cases where i'm dealing with something that's like a multi-million dollar object or a hundred thousand dollar object and and somebody will be like how on earth can you work on that and there's a guy just i just look at the wood it's wood i need to do this to it and whatnot but it, there's so many techniques and skills to learn, which I think is really exciting because like you were talking about before, I don't think I'm ever going to run out of, of things to learn and, and practice. I mean, Absolutely. This is a I mean, there's a there's just there's a million ways in, in, to do almost everything. So e even if you've learned one way to do it, it doesn't mean that there aren't five other ways that may or may not be better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, most of my week has been trying to deal with like three different colored objects. One of them, uh, what repairing an MDF one, and then trying to deal with color on that. That's a whole new ooh, experience. Oh, Christ. Yeah. But then on the other side of it, John and I are preparing this um, large frame to be water gilt. So today, after this, I'm actually going to go do some water gilding. Oh, nice. Oh, boy, that's fun. That's fun. And that's my week. That's awesome. Harry? Nice. Um, you doing anything? I've been busy. <laughs> no, not really. Just been sat around. <laughs> um, yeah, lots of things happening in the workshop. I got a bench now. I brought my bench over from the other workshop, which I just managed to stick in the back of my car somehow. I, that bench was never meant to leave my workshop. I I built it in place in that way. It was the first thing I built in the workshop. I built it in place and I thought that's fine. It's never going to leave. So I had to kind of take bits off of it to get it down the side of the workshop and oh but it's fine so that's nice to have it there and i've kind of flattened the top of it and been making shavings in the new shop which is a relief from doing all the kind of construction work and all of those bits what else have i been doing painting a wall yellow that was fun um although peter hates it <laughs> no all right <laughs> to be fair to be fair i spe <laughs> i specifically hate the orange the, the orange is the one that I probably couldn't live with, but the yellow is not so bad. Good, good. I, I'll take that as approval. It's, it's a little ray of sunshine yeah, so, in your shop. There we go. That's fine. Um, but yeah, lots of things. I've been editing films on, ongoing for ages, kind of taking over my life, but I'm enjoying... I'm, I'm, I want to get to a point where I'm enjoying making those films and I can do them regularly and it's not a burden, which I'm, I feel like I'm getting there. I'm getting quicker and it's kind of a, 
on a bit of an efficient process at the moment. So episode four should be out tomorrow, I think. I should be getting the keys to the second half of the workshop in a couple of weeks as well. So then it all starts again, which I'm half dreading and half really excited for because it means painting breeze blocks again and laying a floor, which is all good fun. But then I can start looking at buying machines, which I'm ecstatic about. That is very exciting. But yeah, lot lots happening. We are, um, I think I said last time the Makers Shed has we've got an opening date now to start teaching again. Um, we're opening on May seventeenth, which is a relief just to kind of see a bit of light at the end. We've been in a national lockdown for oh as long as I can remember. So that will be lovely, and I got a couple of weekend courses coming up at the Maker Shed as well, which are new designed courses which I've not run before. Uh, so, I'm excited about those. Yeah, that'll yeah, be fun. Yeah, so there's a finishing course, finishing course, and a tool maintenance and sharpening course. So, which I haven't actually finished planning yet, and they're they're, they're booked up. So <laughs> crack on with it. But luckily, I've got loads of time, so it's fine. Yeah. But yeah. All good stuff. Been great talking to you, Peter. A pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Yeah. Same here. Thank you for listening, guys. Again, this is how we end the podcast yep. really succinctly. Yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>